At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. Dear Father God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this time of worship. Thank you that you truly, through your Son, paid it all. Father, thank you for Jesus, the sacrifice that he truly experienced on our behalf is beyond what we could ever comprehend. So Father, we thank you by your grace for what you have given us in the gift of your son. Father, I pray that you would even now give us eyes to see the truth of your word, give us ears to hear all that you would have for us this day. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. It's great to be with you here this evening. Uh, my name is Stephen Zerley, one of the pastors here at Woodside. So thankful to br- be able to bring the word of God to all of you tonight. If you have a Bible, please make your way to Luke chapter 22. We're going to dive into this beautiful text tonight. And although it is Good Friday, and certainly, traditionally, we would typically focus upon the cross of Christ and those events in the next chapter that we heard read from Luke 23, we're going to go back a day and look at Luke chapter 22 and spend our time there. We've been in the midst of a series called Soul Food, when a meal with Jesus was more than food. And we've been looking at how these meals spread throughout the gospel of Luke really help us understand the ministry and the heart of Jesus Christ. And certainly, when we come to Luke chapter 22 and see this Last Supper, that's what is occurring. What have been a few of your most memorable meals If you could think about that for a moment, if you look back over the course of your life, maybe the top two, three, four, five meals in your life, the most memorable, the greatest, what would come to mind? The first one that I thought of was in Hawaii. I remember eating at an Italian Mediterranean restaurant called La Scada, La Cascada, back in 2003. The restaurant was on the north shore of Kauai, and it overlooked what was called the Nepali Coast, what is called really the Nepali Coast. The food there was incredible. The, the scenery was even more spectacular. But what made it best was the company I was with. It was with my new bride on my honeymoon. So that goes down as one of my greatest meals. Another one was in Mexico. Now, I've gone deep sea fishing twice in my life. Both times I fed the fish more than I caught the fish. And so in this particular occasion, we were out and we were uh, trying to catch as many fish as we could. We really only came back with a few. Uh, But after about I don't know, two or three hours on the open sea, we uh, were able to bring in a mahi-mahi. And about three hours after catching it, the chef at our hotel in Mexico had cooked it up and served it to us. And maybe it was because I was so happy to be back on land. Maybe it was because I lost my lunch in the ocean and I was starving. Maybe it was because the seafood that was, uh, just seafood in general, that's my favorite. But that was some of the best fish I've ever had. Uh, But while the food was incredible, the best part was, again, the company. Uh, Katie and I were celebrating wedding anniversaries with two of our good friends, Jerry and Becca, on that occasion. A third one was in Paris. I remember eating at a cozy little French bistro called Les Papiles in a quiet part of the city. We had no idea what to expect, but when we sat down, we found out there was no menu. 
the waiter barely spoke English, although he was much smarter than I because he knew at least somewhat more than one language. And as we started to ask him questions, trying to figure out what they had to eat, he just kept saying the same thing over and over and over. He'd just say, you will love the beef. You will love the beef. What else do you have? You will love the beef. Well, is there anything else to offer us? Any salad soup? You will love the beef. It's been stewing and cooking for 12 hours. It's been stewing and cooking for 12 hours. These are the only two things he said the entire time. And you know what? We loved the beef. It was great. It was fantastic. But the best part was not the food. It was being with two of our best friends, Andy and Kate Schmidt. One more. A few years ago, I traveled with a couple busloads of people from Woodside to Israel for a tour of the Holy Land. Uh, One of the days, we ate at a restaurant near the Sea of Galilee, and we had what they call St. Peter's fish. St. Peter's fish is tilapia. They serve it to you cooked, but whole. So when it comes out on the plate, you've got the eyes, you've got the mouth, you've got the fins, you've got the scales, you've got the tail, you've got the bones. It's all right there. It was this type of fish that Peter would have caught. This is the fish that would have filled up the nets at the miraculous catch of fish. And this is the fish that they believe that Jesus multiplied to feed the 5,000. The fish was good, but the best part was being there with, in this case, my mom and checking off one of her bucket list items in her life. Now, I'm not actually a world traveler. These are just highlights over a few decades, but the picture I'm wanting you to see is that what makes a memorable meal is ultimately not the food. It's not the ambiance or the scenery. It's always the people. If I remove the people from any of those meals, it wouldn't be much of a memory. Honestly, it would probably be a memory of sadness or isolation or solitude. The best meals are always centered around our deepest relationships. The story of Jesus' Last Supper started a symbolic meal that has taken place billions and billions of times truly since. It's not the greatest food, at least not the way we typically practice it. It might have been back in those days. Uh, The stale wafer and stale grape juice don't really do much to satisfy your hunger or quench your thirst. But remembering the sacrifice of our Savior, remembering the sacrifice of our Lord, our King, our first and greatest love in the company of an eternal spiritual family, knowing we are forgiven, that we are at peace, that our souls have been cleansed by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, that we are unconditionally received and loved as children through faith, that God's literal presence dwells within us through the Holy Spirit, that we have communion with God right now and forever because of what the Christ has done for us. If Jesus is your deepest relationship, then the Lord's table will forever be the greatest meal you will experience. If, if Jesus is your deepest relationship, if you have the most intimacy with him above all others, it's only possible for him to be your deepest relationship if you believe the gospel and have given all of your life to him through faith. And that's the beauty of this story of the Last Supper is that Jesus' meal is for everyone who belongs to him. It's open to the world, but it's specifically for those who have trusted in him through faith. So in Luke chapter 22, we'll pick up the story in verse 7. We're going to 
take our time to walk through the culture, the background, the history of this whole scene. This is what the uh, author writes for us. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So let's immerse ourselves in the reality of the story. I just want you to get a glimpse of what this would have really been like at that time in the first century. If you were a Jew in the first century experiencing the Passover festival in Jerusalem, it was exhilarating. Packing 200,000, that's about what they, they guess. Uh, Josephus said over 3 million. It was clear exaggeration. It was about 200,000 people that would fit inside the stone walls of this ancient city, and it created incredible anticipation and excitement. People would sleep anywhere they could find a little space, and really the only currency you could use for this particular festival when you went to someone's house or home or hotel was to give them the hide of a sheep or a goat or the lamb that you're going to sacrifice and then eat on that Passover for a feast. Merchants would have uh, set up their tents to sell all their products. The city would have been full of them. It was like a citywide farmer's market. The traffic and congestion at the city gates was, was made even more intense for this time. It was made worse because every beggar from the region would have come and sat right outside of the gates knowing that people are coming in with joy, with anticipation for a giant party, with money in pocket, with food in hand, with family and friends. And so they'd ask for money, for help, for support. Now on the day of sacrifice... Uh, the biggest purchase that would be made for this meal would be that sacrificial sheep or goat, preferably a lamb. It was a requirement that people would get together with 10 or more in groups to eat the Passover meal because they had to eat the entire lamb. You couldn't leave anything at all. It, it all had to be eaten in one sitting. And on that day of sacrifice, instead of one division of priests who would serve in the temple to, to, to perform those sacrifices, they would get 24 divisions of priests to do three different shifts, huge shifts. So what would happen is the first big group of people would be shoved into the temple as many as they could fit. And that these 24 divisions of priests, several of them would then line up in two rows. And once they got everybody in, then they'd shut the gates to the temple. A priest would blast a shofar and the sacrifices would then begin. The pilgrims would approach two long rows of these priests holding basins of silver and gold. And each Israelite slaughtered their own offering. The priest would catch the blood and toss it at the base of the altar. Then the Israelite would leave the temple with the slain lamb draped over their shoulder. They would take it to where they were staying and, and the lamb, they would roast it actually in a pomegranate spit. And that's how they would roast the lamb on the Passover meal. And everybody would dress in festive white clothes. Now in Jesus' time, the celebration added elements that were far beyond the Old Testament requirements. There was what they called a, a, a seder, and maybe you've experienced one of those types of meals before, which means a set order or procedure of the meal. The host would explain how each of the foods on the table related to their deliverance from Egypt. So there was bitter herbs, and that represented how, how they were involved in bitter slavery. There was a mixture of stewed fruit, and when they looked at the consistency and the colors, it reminded them of the bricks that they had to make. 
The roasted lamb reminded them of the lamb's blood that was put on the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over that home. And that's where the name came from, the Passover meal. Once the meal was done, people would go back into the streets, the party wasn't over, and they'd start celebrating. The temple would stay closed until midnight, they'd open up the gates, and then they'd have a concert. And this was the beginning of the festival of the unleavened bread. It was a massive undertaking, a massive party full of joy. Now Luke mentions the day of unleavened bread in verse 7, which fixes the date for us. The lamb was slain between 3 and 5 p.m. on the 14th day of the month of Nisan. And at 6 p.m., when, uh, 6 p.m., that was the official beginning to the next day in the Jewish calendar. So the 15th day of Nisan, the Passover, was eaten. Now verse 8, it says, So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now, it seems like, how are you going to find a guy carrying a jar of water in a city with over 200,000 people? It seems like you're just sending him off to find just some random person. But it was much more specific than that because women at the time carried water in jars. Men typically carried them in skins. And so they were looking for someone very specific. And that's exactly what they found. And Jesus says, follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover meal with my disciples. The assumption is that Jesus has already preset this up. He's had conversations. And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, why all the secrecy? Why all the secrecy? Because Jesus knew the intentions of all of his disciples, and there was one disciple amongst the 12 who was about, of course, to betray him. He knew of Judas's intentions. And if Jesus would have said where this was all going to happen, the exact house, the address, the room, then Judas would have betrayed him earlier than anticipated, and he would have then never had this meal at all. We wouldn't have the Lord's Supper. So Jesus sends two of his most trusted disciples, two of the inner three, Peter and John, and they find everything exactly like Jesus said it would be. The couches are arranged. The table is set. Peter and John then run off to buy a lamb. They then run over to the temple with that lamb. They wait in line. They get through the gates in one of those three huge shifts. They sacrifice the lamb. The the blood is sprinkled. They pick up all the trimmings for the meal. They go back to the house. They put the lamb on the pomegranate spit. They then go upstairs, start preparing all the other things, and then they wait for everyone else to arrive. This meal requires preparation. And Jesus had done everything to be prepared for this moment, for this meal. It was too important. There were so many things he was doing, so many levels and layers of symbolism. After 33 years or so, this would be the moment Jesus would share most directly with his disciples how salvation was going to be made available for the entire world. In verse 14, it says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
It's not that he was in a rush to get to the cross. That's, that's not it at all. So why is he so earnestly desiring to have this Passover meal, to, to rush off to what's next? No, it's, it's he was eager to get their undivided attention to teach them how this meal would illustrate the greatest truths ever re- revealed to human beings. The cross wouldn't simply mean deliverance for the Israelites from the power of another nation like Egypt or Rome. It would be the deliverance of all of God's people from every tribe and tongue from the power of sin and spiritual death. So Jesus thought about how after his death, he would have been then united. He's looking forward to that day when he will be united with his followers, his church, as the Lord of hosts uh, sets a table in the kingdom of God forever. This is why Hebrews tells us, the author of Hebrews says to us, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. Because Jesus was looking forward to this day that John saw in the final book that we have in the canon itself, in the book of Revelation. Chapter 19, verse 6, when John writes, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out hallelujah for the Lord our God God the almighty reigns let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure do you see all the parallels for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So back to our text, look at verse 17 then. Next, Jesus takes the cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, at a typical Seder meal, there would be several cups uh, representing several different things. I'll I'll talk about that in a few minutes. Typically, though, everyone would drink from their own cups, but at the beginning of this meal, Jesus takes the first cup and then has everybody drink out of the same one. Why does he do this? Why is he breaking tradition? He was showing us that through faith, we are all brought in then to the same family, When we take communion together, when we receive the truth of the cross of Christ, when we receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are not part of different families. It's not the Zerillis and the Robinsons and the Quans and the Friths and the Wilsons. We are one family united in Jesus. But is that how you look at the people in the room? Is that how we view one another? Certainly that's what Jesus was wanting to get across to the 12, to those who were present. So then Jesus introduces new meaning to these two basic elements of a meal, the bread and the cup. Verse 19, and he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We've heard these words so many times. Where do they come from? In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 3, it tells us that the unleavened bread was thought of as the bread of affliction because it reminded them of their persecution then back in Egypt. And so Jesus gives it greater significance here. It represents Jesus' body and the affliction he endured on the cross. Jesus was not saying the bread was literally his body, 
So many get confused by that reality because of church history, perhaps because of your background. His body was literally given to us on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin, but this here, this is figurative language. Jesus was not saying the bread was literally his body. The Jews used figurative language all the time. Jesus said at other times, I am the door, or I am the bread of life, or I am the true vine. The only way his disciples would have interpreted this statement was figuratively. So his body was then given on the cross for sin, literally, but these elements were meant to illustrate that reality to us. So he says, do this in remembrance of me. Every time you eat bread together, every time you are with your spiritual family, remember me, remember my sacrifice. And the early church, if we look forward to the book of Acts, they met daily. So how often did Jesus want them to remember what he had done? And in this case, what he was about to do? All the time. Our lives are meant to be shaped every day by the cross. Every day our lives are meant to be shaped by the cross. Verse 20, the second element, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, he said, this cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. The old covenant was built around the law given through Moses. It was built on promises made by God and promises that were made by the Israelites. It was ratified through sacrifices and the shedding of blood. That's what we find throughout the Old Testament, all these sacrificial system nuances and quirks. Why are they all there? Why so much blood? Why so much death? Why are, there, why are there these kind of elements within these covenants? Because blood lets us see the seriousness of sin and to remind us that the payment for sin is death. Israel failed miserably at their end of the deal, and we do too. So Christ here creates a new covenant that is not dependent upon our work. It's only dependent upon him. He is the Passover lamb. So our sin slaughters him, but his broken body and blood covers over every sin through faith. His sacrifice is an endless ocean of mercy and grace for anyone who believes. The Passover imagery, it doesn't end with the Lord's table. It continues into the Garden of Gethsemane. He moves from that meal and then he shares with his disciples. They go down what's called the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and there they go into this olive grove called the Garden of Gethsemane. And I wanna take us there for a few moments because he talks even further about the cups. As I said, during a typical Passover Seder, there are multiple cups of wine that each person drinks, four actually to be exact. It sounds like a lot, but just because they drank four cups of wine doesn't mean that the glasses had to be completely full. So each cup then represented a part of God's saving work as communicated in the Old Testament. It's really from Exodus chapter six, verses two through eight. But let me just read the last few verses. It says, therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and here's the promises. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So the cup, all these cups represent these four promises of God's saving work that they celebrated at the meal. When God says, I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my own. 
The Jews, though, they added a fifth cup. And the fifth cup wasn't taken from Exodus 6. It was an empty cup that no one would drink at that table. It's called Elijah's cup or the cup of iniquity, or maybe you've heard of the cup of God's wrath. It's from Jeremiah chapter 25 when the prophet writes, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And when they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom he sent me drink it. Now, Orthodox Jews today, today, like literally today, still believe Elijah will return just before the Messiah. They still believe that he will return before this Messiah would bring peace and prosperity. This is part of what Orthodox Jews at the Western Wall, if you've seen pictures of them there, that's why they're weeping. That's why they rock back and forth to pray with passion to say, God, would you finally send uh, Elijah, this, this prophet who's to return so the Messiah will come? But they missed it. They missed the symbolism that Elijah came in the person of John the Baptist, and then they missed the Messiah himself, John's cousin, Jesus. So for the Jewish people during the time of Christ, the fifth cup, it's filled, but nobody drinks it. Nobody wants to drink it. To drink of God's wrath would be a terrible thing. Now think about Jesus. All of that background, all of these moments, all of these scenes, Growing up in a typical Jewish household, he would come to that Passover meal every year. They would have the four cups on the tables. Everybody would partake, but they'd leave that one. And from the time he was old enough to recognize what was going on, he'd look over at that cup and see it empty. And it was empty year after year after year. And you think about the Christ and you think about what might have gone through his mind. How many times had he stared at that fifth cup, the one that no one drank? And over time, I wonder when he began to realize through the Spirit that was his cup to drink. How did he feel that last night, knowing this is the last time he would drink from those cups and ultimately drink from the cup of God's wrath? I wonder if he recognized it when he was eight or 10 or 13 or 16 or whatever age it might have been, knowing this is what the Father has for me. Look down at verse 41. In the garden, it says, and he withdrew from them at about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. The fifth cup is what he's referring to, Elijah's cup, the cup of God's wrath. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Matthew's gospel tells us that this happened three times. He says, take the cup from me, Father. I don't want to drink it. Continues to pray. Father, would you take this cup from me? I don't want to drink it. Father, would you take this cup from me? I don't, I don't want to drink it. Yet not my will, but yours be done. So he took it. He drank it. Every drop, every sin, every act of rebellion, every failure, he drank it all. 
He drank it in our place because we are the nations. We are the children of wrath. And because Jesus followed through, because Jesus followed through with what the Father had asked of him, commanded him, God has brought you out of darkness and into light. God has freed you. God has redeemed you. God has taken you as his own. Jesus redefined the Passover for the entire world to experience. The elements, they're deeply significant. That's what we've been talking about this whole time, but the elements aren't the best part. The best part is the company. When you have given your life to Jesus, this meal is the reminder that you belong to him. That you belong to him more than you belong to any other. More than you belong to the world. You're not the world's. And that's a good thing because the world does not love you or know how to care for your soul. You are not your own. And that's a good thing because we can't manufacture in ourselves everything that we need. We, we don't have the resources in and of ourselves to care for our own souls. The Lord's table will be the greatest meal for you if Jesus is your deepest relationship. It will be the greatest meal if Jesus is your king, is your savior, is your Lord. But Jesus might not be your deepest relationship. You might not yet belong to him. That's why Luke 22 shows us through this story that this meal requires preparation. Are you ready to partake of the Lord's Supper? Have you submitted your life to Jesus in faith? That's the question. This meal represents unification. Are we ready to partake together? Are you actually involved in this spiritual family? Do you understand that you have a responsibility to the people around you and they have a responsibility to you? You're not strangers. You're actually spiritual family brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ, which is a greater power than any human relationship could ever provide. Are you ready for this supper because... It also represents our identification. Not literally, but knowing that in Jesus' death, you died to sin. In his life, you live by faith. That through faith, the old has gone and the new has come. I read the story of Dr. Christian Barnard and Dr. Philip Blayberg this this week. Christian Barnard was the first surgeon to ever do a heart transplant. And the patient was Philip Blaybird. After Philip recovered from the surgery, Christian asked him, would you like to see your old heart? So the men stood and walked into another room within the hospital in Johannesburg, South Africa. And that's when Christian went over to a cupboard, brought back a container and said, here you go. Well, at that moment, Philip then looks at the container, opens it up, And he stood there in silence for a minute, staring at it. He was the first man in history to ever hold his own heart in his hands. The two of them talked for about 10 minutes about the technicalities of the procedure and all the questions that doctors and surgeons might be interested in. And then Philip looked back at the container and said, so this is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. He handed the container back to, Christ, uh, back to Christian, then he turned away and he left it forever. This is the heart that caused me so much trouble. Hands it back 
turns away and leaves it forever. If you are in Christ, your old heart is gone. If you are in Christ, the new has come. When you come to the table, what do you see? When you take the elements, who are you thinking about? What is your deepest relationship? What is that relationship of deepest intimacy? What is that great meal? There's nothing better than the meal that we have with Christ. And so we celebrate it on this day. Because of this day, it's a reality for us that we actually can have relationship with him. If you belong to Christ, the old is gone. The new is come and no meal will ever be the same. So let me, uh, let me pray, and what we're going to do here is I'm going to pray in a moment. Uh, the band's going to lead in a song, and during the song, as you prepare your heart, as you think about your relationships, as you think about this meal, as you think about the cross of Christ, I would just invite you at any time during the song just to walk up and grab some of the elements, then return to your seat, reflect upon the cross, pray, listen, spend time with Jesus. Spend time with the one who died for you. When the song is done, I'll come up and lead us in taking all of the elements together. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that you passed over our sin. Thank you that you took care of every detail that at the table of that last supper, everything was designed to perfection to fulfill your plan. And Jesus, I... I don't know when that awareness came to you. That you knew that by God's design, you were the Passover lamb. You were the body that would be broken for us. You were the blood that would be shed for us. You were the reason why sin could be passed over through faith. And that meal, those days, those moments changed the world forever and changed our eternity and Father, if there be any here today, maybe they've gone through tradition, but they have been relying on their own work. They think they identify with you, Father, but they've been thinking it's through their own effort, their own work. I pray that in these moments, they'd have the courage to understand the gospel and to say and to pray to you with sincerity, Father, forgive me. My sin is before me. I know Jesus is the sacrifice that was necessary to cover over all of my sin. I give my life to him. I want to live in obedience to him. I want to worship him with everything that I am and everything that I could be. I want to fulfill his purposes for my life, not my own. And Father, for everyone who has made that decision of faith, today or before we take this meal the greatest meal that we could ever experience because we know what it represents. We know what it means that the God of the universe is with us forever, that we are yours and you are ours. Thank you for the cross that made it possible. Thank you for your blood that put an end to every sacrifice needed. Thank you for your body that was broken for us. We remember in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.